0: Last Friday, January 20th, was the half-term mark of Mr. Biden's presidency.
1: Absolutely. It, it doesn't typically happen in say the second year though. What's interesting and potentially unique here is it's pretty early in Biden's term. It, I was thinking even back to the summer when we started to see the polling around the question of would you prefer someone other than Joe Biden to run in 2024 to Democrats? And the majority the majority of polled Democrats said yes.
0: Oh wow! Majority—that's
1: that's what's unique here—is that. So it can be a little deceiving in our era where it's assumed that a president will seek a second term. When we look back on the list of one-term presidents, that in fact they purposely did not seek that second term. And and from my perspective, I was curious if Biden, in this moment, might draw a page from history and determine that he would um, purposely be a one-term president as opposed to. What appears to be the case that he is in fact mounting a second front, but to your point about challenges from the party, like we don't have to go that far back to see on um, the Democratic side that in 1980 Ted Kennedy mounted a very serious challenge to Jimmy, oh Trump. yeah, um, and that weakened him significantly. Carter will win the nomination, but he will walk away weakened. Actually, there are there are more Republicans uh, who attempted second terms who and
0: did didn't succeed
1: did interesting there was a quote from jefferson's uh era and that is the greatest party ever known
0: did you know that congressional investigations of sitting u.s presidents such as the biden family investigation by chairman james comer and oversight committee republicans in the u.s house are not new in our history The big shift when it comes to investigating a sitting U.S. president is that in the 19th century and early 20th century, much of these investigations occurred behind closed doors. (laughs) But all of that changed after Nixon's Watergate. Now virtually every investigation is conceived and scripted as a media spectacle for the public's consumption. Hey there, news peelers, Today is January 27, 2023. And this is Adele, the host of a History Behind News podcast. Aren't you tired of the repetitive news on TV and social media? They just go over the same dramatized developments all day long. Do you ever wonder what happened before our news? I mean, how do we get here? For example, what's the history of the GOP or the Democratic Party? What are our environmental, economic, scientific, and cultural histories? And how about the history of past wars, like between Ukraine and Russia? Or the history of women's rights and revolutions, like in Iran? And of course, there's China's long history. They say if you don't know your history, you're bound to repeat it. So while others cover the news, I uncover its history. I call this peeling the history behind news, which we accomplish in weekly conversations with distinguished scholars who delve deep into history to give us their fascinating perspectives from our past. I'm committed to making in-depth history that are researched and written by scholars, enjoyable and accessible to everyone. After all, why shouldn't we expect intelligent entertainment? So grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink and let's get into it. Now that Mr. Biden is halfway through his presidential term, we want to find his place in US history. In other words, to weigh his presidency against prior US presidents. For example, how does Mr. Biden's successors or failures stack up against his predecessors? How does his age compare to prior US presidents? I know that's a big concern for lots of people. And related to that, here's another question. Have any former US presidents died of old age while in office? How about classified documents? Has that been an issue with other sitting presidents? Also, there's the matter of the Democratic Party itself. Would Andrew Jackson, the first president of the Democratic Party, recognize President Biden's Democratic Party? How about FTR, a more modern Democratic president? Would he recognize President Biden's Democratic Party? Would either of them vote for a Biden second term? To learn more about this history and to get some insights for what's happening now in our present moment, I spoke with Dr. Thomas Balzerski. He's a visiting professor in U.S. history at Occidental College, also known as Oxy, where he teaches courses on U.S. presidents and first ladies, as well as the history of the Democratic Party from Thomas Jefferson to Joe Biden. In addition to Oxy, Dr. Balzerski is a professor of American history at Eastern Connecticut State University. Dr. Balzerski is also a long-term fellow at the Huntington Library, where he's conducting research for his forthcoming book, titled The Greatest Party Ever Known, which we discuss in this episode. He is the author of Bosom Friends, The Intimate World of James Buchanan and William Rufus King. Among his many publications and projects with the White House History Quarterly, Civil War History, Journal of Social History, and others, he recently appeared on the Discovery Plus series, The Book of Queer, to discuss the sexuality of Abraham Lincoln. To learn more about Dr. Balzarski, you can visit his academic homepage, the link for which is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So, stay with me as Dr. Balzarski and I peel the history behind this news. Dr. Balzowski, it is a pleasure to have you on our program again. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. Last Friday, January 20th, marked President Biden's half term, but what dominated the news and likely will dominate it for some time is the discovery of classified documents in his homes. So, Did any other sitting U.S. presidents have to contend with this specific issue of classified documents in in, in some fashion?
1: Well, thanks for having me back, Adele. And this is, again, a topical and timely question since President Biden is not only a sitting president, but a former vice president. And Mm -hmm. it does raise the whole kind of history of presidential records, and it does apply to various members of the executive branch. Back in 1978, Congress passed the Presidential Records Act, which put what went into effect in the presidency of Ronald Reagan starting in 1981. So only since 1981 have we had a congressional sort of oversight or legislative act that governs the way presidents, sitting presidents, handle classified materials, preserve the records of their administration, and more or less have to then conform to rules and regulations. Um, This is the first sitting U.S. president to come into deep scrutiny over potential violations, over potential misconduct of the Presidential Records Act while in office. Of course, we don't have to go that far back because it dominated the headlines not long before this most recent discovery of President Biden's having had classified materials to know that former President Trump um, did, in fact, break those same rules, did in fact take classified materials with him after his presidency to his residence in Mar-a-Lago Florida, some 12 boxes, as we understand it. But to your question, there's a specific one about sitting president. Yeah. No, but again, it's, it's interesting because the initial discovery of the documents was, about, was in connection to what then-Vice President Biden, former then-Vice President Biden, having mishandled classified materials. What's sort of unclear to me still, and I think what may be the developing story, is, to, is that the most recent batch of discoveries at his home in Delaware, um, to my knowledge, have not been pinned to a moment in his public life. Whether that have been again after his vice presidency, uh, or then again maybe documents now that have that have been placed there since his presidency. So I think that's, that's one distinction to draw. But either way, um, the, as former vice president, he would be subject to the same level of scrutiny, conduct, and and certainly investigation if if the sitting Congress so chose. And just days ago, then to finally put a point on it, former vice president. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. News.
0: I'm wondering, um, the 1978 Presidential Records Act, which went into effect in 1981 during uh, Mr. Reagan's presidency, was the impetus for that act, and I'm going on a limb here, uh, Dr. Baslerski, I'm speculating here, I don't know much about this history, but was the impetus for this act perhaps the Nixon years?
1: Oh, absolutely, Dylan. It doesn't take too much of a connection to think about it. why that would be. Uh, because during the six and a half years of the Nixon administration, mm-hmm. it was, of course, revealed that President Nixon at that time, while president had a secret recording system of stations yeah. in the Oval Office, these recordings were most immediately of interest to Congress in investigating a misconduct that we now know as the Watergate scandal, ultimately The extent to which the president was knowledgeable about break-ins at the Watergate Hotel to monitor, spy on, and ultimately gain politically from knowledge about the the Democratic Party in the 1972 election. So there was a culture, kind of of a, a moment where the Congress, after Nixon's resignation, took legislative action to prevent future such misconduct and also to deal with lingering issues ultimately about how former presidents would... Um, be sort of subject to um, the preservation of the materials. Um, it's really part of a kind of multi-decade effort, slowly but surely, to kind of regulate, legislate, really, um, how we preserve presidential materials. Um, it's in a way connected also to the history of presidential libraries, uh, which, again, falls under the National uh, Archives and Records Administration, NARA, as well as to respond to the problems that had emerged during the Nixon administration. So the Presidential Records Act in 1978 governs the official records of presidents and vice presidents after, again, 1981. Um, it establishes that all president all records are owned by the public, which was important. Previously, they had been considered private or belonging. Oh, to
0: interesting, as president. in belonging to the person of the president. But now we, we know they're public.
1: Precisely. And that also, also applied to gifts and other kinds of things that maybe came into the purview of the president during his term in office. Um, But it it also puts the the emphasis on management of those records on the president. So any any misconduct around it, again, this is sort of reading the shadow of Nixon here, ultimately is that president's responsibility. Um, It does also allow for the disposal of documents that do not have a historic or informational value. So that's, you know, to say that this is a mass of information that each presidency develops boxes upon boxes, warehouses. Yeah, yeah, of course. So there is some, you know, provision for that. Um, And then the archivists of the United States and and that team will slowly but surely take full ownership of it. And, And one of the things that, again, from an accountability standpoint that the Presidential Records Act allowed for is FOIA, Freedom of Information Act requests so that in time, usually five years after the end of the term, the public can begin to make these FOIA Freedom of Information Act requests and hopefully learn something that might otherwise have been opaque or unclear, although classified information will continue to be classified and there we're on 50 plus year cycles in some cases where documents will remain classified into the future.
0: You know, when we talk about classified documents in the cases of Mr. Trump, Mr. Biden, and Mr. Pence, that's kind of um, a subset of the category of national security as a whole. At the beginning of our conversation, I asked you about classified documents. I'm wondering, have other presidents, sitting presidents, dealt with controversies about national security information? I'm I'm kind of getting broader, if you will.
1: Yes. So... Leaving aside the distinction that we've already created about presidents who were under the Presidential Records Act and those who weren't, Mm -hmm. there there was still a classified document or information apparatus that dates back arguably to the 19th century, but in a more formal way to the 20th century. And um, we start to see kind of classified information as a term emerging really into the middle of the 20th century, into... And after the formation of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI, it's that agency. So we're talking
0: 19, late 1930s, 40s, something like that. Yeah, kind
1: of. Really, it's really, really starting in the 20s and 30s, we sort of see classified information emerging from the Bureau that begins to put distinctions on the kind of uh, information that comes before a president. And whether those documents then are stored or maintained in a certain way became a kind of an administration to administration. Question and while there were ethics involved, there wasn't necessarily law involved to that point. So only over time have we learned about classified documents that a exist because um, again, it's not behold, it's not sort of incumbent upon our government to release classified information unless it's deemed to be um, safe to do so. And this is still the case around documents even back say to the Kennedy administration that remain classified. But we have learned subsequently because of particular cases or because of important moments um, that relate to the politics of the era, where classified documents have then been revealed or declassified and can tell us something, therefore, about the the record management itself. The Mm -hmm. one that has been raised as a comparable to President Trump, although I think for very different reasons, is when President Lyndon Johnson was in office. Interesting. in his final days he indeed took by request classified information with him back to texas for very specific reasons
0: do we know what those reasons were
1: in a way they were political uh-huh. uh, as they ha- they pertain to the actions of then candidate richard nixon former vice president to become president-elect richard nixon in 1968 and his communication with individuals who were in contact with the government of South Vietnam. Reminder this is during the height of the Vietnam War, where yeah. the issue of the conduct of the war and America's involvement in that war was the issue of the 1968 election, featuring a uh, pitting Nixon versus Johnson's vice president, Hubert Humphrey. Johnson himself, in many ways, was unable to reach to run for another term because of the, his conduct and his crisis really created by the vietnam war yeah, so to know yeah. that there were these classified documents um that johnson took is very interesting because it's politically tense and charged over time there was because they were still classified because there was not a clarity about it there was a lot of rumors there was a, and there was accusations and denials and while after president nixon's term in office he was repeatedly asked about sort of his involvement potentially in communicating directly or indirectly with the government of South Vietnam while a candidate. And the, the nature of that communication, it should be pointed out, was an attempt to push said government not to come to the, the bargaining table, not to come to the peace table with their enemy, the North Vietnamese in that war, to then make sort of it not possible to give political capital to, who, to Hubert Humphrey, who was emerging as a peace candidate, in a, in a sort of a late phase of that campaign while Nixon was hold the course peace with honor. So the whole, point oh it, wow. Yeah. I mean, the whole point is that Nixon, that's is,
0: a big deal.
1: It, it, if it had been revealed in 1968, say an 11th hour reveal.
0: Exactly.
1: It could have tipped the election the other way to Hubert Humphrey. Absolutely.
0: The uh, lBJs going back to what you were saying, uh, rumors and denials, um, the fact that he took classified information with him uh, from the White House to Texas, that never became an issue then. And I think you just confirmed that by going through this. That just never became a controversy in 68, even about LBJ, right?
1: Because it was, on, it was not known at the yeah.
0: time.
1: That, that's part of it, is that it was done in secret. He actually directed one of his national security aides, Walt Rostow, in fact. To take the documents back to the ranch, the LGBT, LBJ ranch, which in time becomes the, the LBJ presidential library. And the documents are, you know, they're there. And so and it ends up being that there's knowledge of classified documents at the LBJ library, which is not actually unusual. There are tons of classified documents at all of the presidential libraries. But these documents ended up being declassified earlier than the 50 year uh, time window that might normally be applied. And when when they were finally declassified, by 2016, in fact, um, it became clear the nature of the documents and indeed the nature of Nixon's involvement in that moment. So we've we've kind of finally put the issue to bed, but it's taken decades to kind of piece the story together and come to the clear uh, conclusion that there was communication, there was an effort, a conscious effort on Nixon's part to um, influence the course of peace negotiations in the fall of 68.
0: There's so much to that history. It sounds like that could be a podcast episode onto itself, right? Um, We started our conversation by talking about classified information, classified documents. Uh, What's interesting is that even before disclosure of the discovery of these uh, classified uh, documents at President Biden's homes, the GOP House leadership was... Announcing its plans to investigate President Biden on a raft of different issues, like Hunter Biden's laptop, the US Mexico border security, what have you. Uh, so, I'm wondering have other sitting presidents faced congressional investigations in their first terms?
1: Well, when posed that way, the answer is yes.
0: Should <laughs> so I pose it in a different way?
1: I mean, probably because yeah. think, about, think about the nature of the word investigation. Yeah, um, it's actually not all that difficult for a sitting Congress to investigate a sitting president. Um, it's in fact one of the core functions of Congress is to provide oversight. We, James Madison envisioned this as one of the checks and balances that Congress could provide on the president. And as he formulated the Constitution, the mechanism of impeachment became the ultimate way to remove a corrupt politician. One we've Attempted on four different occasions and in each case never came to um, a removal, but leaving aside impeachment, which has proven to be a rather difficult and unwieldy political tool of congressional oversight. There are still the, the, the function of committees and of the operation day to day of mostly the House of Representatives, in fact, to hold the president accountable. And this is takes this takes many forms. It takes the form of um, inquiries, investigations the use of subpoenas to bring witnesses to Congress to appear. Um, We've not seen very often presidents been called before Congress. Usually it's through the the function of a special prosecutor uh, who's assigned. And in this case, there is one now assigned to President Biden's um, in this investigation through the attorney general, which underscores also how while the attorney general does ostensibly work for the president, he's not and should not be his personal lawyer, which yeah. other presidents on occasion have used because it is, in fact, this sort of third party independence that attorney generals need to then appoint special prosecutors to then investigate the sitting president that has allowed for. I think the, those investigations to proceed and for public for the public to have confidence that their presidents and that their leaders are acting within um, the codes of conduct within the law. So I, I think that's one thing, but, you know, that's sort of a more recent development. I should point out the, the function of the special, the assignment of a special prosecutor, the whole public inquiry, uh, the calling of televised committees, again, thinking back to the Nixon Watergate years, um, in the 19th century at various moments, we've seen sitting presidents investigated, um, But because of the way Congress then investigated, because of the closed door nature of those investigations, it wasn't the same kind of public media event that it will become starting in the 1970s. And really, since then, since the Watergate era, um, any investigation of a president has been a major public event. And whether that be through, again, these special prosecutors, whether it be through congressional committees or ultimately through using just the news, using the platform of communicating directly people. Um, through television, now internet, it's essentially fulfilling the same function. Uh, and that's really where we are now, whereby even if a president isn't in, under investigation, there's political capital to be gained by claiming that an investigation will take place.
0: It's ongoing, yeah. First, I wanted to sort of uh, to, to acknowledge that uh, the qu- couching the question in the words investigation really makes it broad because going back all the way, perhaps not to president washington but thereafter there were all sorts of investigations of the uh, executive branch uh, at the very least um i think what's different and you pointed to it since the 1970s it's been more pointed towards the person of the president and it's been more public uh, whether in the 19th century or thereafter has there ever been a case where a president that has been investigated by Congress during their first term hasn't made it to a second term?
1: Right. So what you're getting at is to what extent we've seen historically Congress been able to derail the political future.
0: Exactly. Of
1: presidents. And on the one hand, you might say, did they affect it during a re-election campaign? And then you can maybe directly tie uh, the efficacy of a congressional investigation to a president's second term. On the other, you might say, did it so weaken a president? that there wasn't even a chance for renomination or reelection so yeah. maybe those are two categories mm-hmm. um, and on the i sort of look at the 19th century presidents there aren't that many two-term presidents
0: yeah that's right actually yeah
1: and in fact there aren't that many who would who sought second terms um but then again there are those who might have sought a second term or, or attempted to at least gain the political capital to find a way to be nominated a second time who were not. And the two that come to mind most strongly are are two that were well, one who was nearly impeached and one who was impeached. That's both John Tyler and Andrew Johnson. These vice presidents who came into office after the death of a sitting president William Andrew Harrison and Abraham Lincoln. And both attempted to kind of in because they had really two full full terms, both attempted to really build a political base to sort of
0: by, by full terms, Dr. Uh, Balzarski, you mean um, the, the the sitting president had died early in the Sorry term. Enough. They gave him three plus years for the VP.
1: March and April, respectively. In there April you go. Yes. And Lincoln. So we're talking nearly four-year terms and yeah. acted like it. Um, and there's, you know, the, the Tyler story kind of comes into clear view um, because when we saw, when we had the two impeachments of President Trump, there was a lot of interest to kind of look at when impeachment was threatened or used. Attempted to be utilized, and while Tyler wasn't impeached, there was definitely efforts to impeach him that did not succeed. Of course, Andrew Johnson was impeached, yeah, and he was impeached in 1868, the final year of his of that term, at a moment when there still was a possibility, perhaps, that he could emerge as a presidential candidate in some way uh, for some either a party or an in, we might say as an independent. And I, I would say that his impeachment ultimately does destroy any possible chance that that he had for a nomination from any party and similarly i think john tyler's if not threat of impeachment then the contention that he came into with his with his own party politically also derailed that future so i think there's maybe that's one way to read that sort of tension between congress Mm -hmm. or antagonism between congress but the other one sort of just flipping a coin because there are many examples of a president more recently, who overcame every effort to destroy his presidency through presidential investigation is Bill Clinton. And, <laughs> I mean, Clinton, yeah, is, yeah. You know, we, we sometimes forget how resilient, how incredibly, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for besides resilient, how incredibly capable, really, as a politician he was. And it seemed like no matter what the most recent claim was, he was able to overcome it. Now, he is impeached. That's in his second term. It's after his reelection. But just as a metric of the way, the extent to which it did not truly affect uh, his standing before the public, he left with a very high approval rating.
0: (laughs) He's still popular. That's the funny thing. (laughs) We'll be back after a short break to talk about President Biden's age. Later in this episode, my guest, Dr. Balzerski, will take us back to President Jefferson in search of the roots of the Democratic Party. This is quite interesting because an earlier guest of this program, Professor Joel Paul, also goes back to Jefferson, but for the roots of the Republican Party. And while in this episode, Dr. Balzerski and I discuss a second Biden term in the context of U.S. history, of course, in another episode, Professor Gerhardt who testified at President Trump's impeachment hearings, discusses a second Trump term in the context of history. The links to my conversations with Professors Paul and Gerhardt are provided in the detailed caption of this episode. Now, let's get back to our conversation with Dr. Balzerski. Dr. Balzerski, President Biden was born in 1942. He was inaugurated when he was 78 years old, and he's now 80. So let's compare his age with other U.S. presidents. Prior to Biden, who was the oldest president to be inaugurated?
1: This one might surprise you. It's Donald Trump. Um, Seriously?
0: Oh, wow. I thought it was Reagan. Okay.
1: We kind of forget how old. Trump was and is and still is. And if there is a rematch, it will still again be the two oldest candidates to run against each other in
0: 2024.
1: Oh, wow. Donald Trump was just a little bit older than Ronald Reagan was in an inauguration in his second term. And in fact, uh, he was still older than Reagan was when Reagan left office at the end of his second term. Um, So, yes, Donald Trump. And yes, before that, Ronald Reagan, and before that, William Henry Harrison.
0: Are you talking about uh, Donald Trump being older at his inauguration than um, Reagan's second inauguration? Is that what you... Yeah, yes. I understand correctly. Have many U.S. presidents died in the Oval Office of Natural Causes?
1: Well, the, the three that... Um, actually, well, I would say the four that stand out that i will point to here is there's a period of bad luck shall we say in the 1840s and 50s
0: period of bad Um, luck oh wow okay that's
1: not sort of like the era of good feelings it's the era of bad luck
0: yeah Um, (laughs) the the opposite
1: the era of ill health but yes william henry harrison and zachary taylor two the only two Whigs ever elected famously both die in office within a couple of years one month in the case of Harrison, and in the second year in the case of Taylor. Fast forward, we have Warren Harding dies in his third year in office, second full, uh, 1923. And then lastly, last president to die in office, Franklin Roosevelt, um, at the end of beginning of his fourth term, I should say, in 1945. So you do have these four deaths uh, in office of natural causes, you might say, ill health, variously. Uh, And that's, of course, different from assassinations, which take place.
0: Of course. Which one of these four can we attribute to old age? Uh, FDRs, I think, um, by the standards of those days, he was old. How about Harding, Harrison and Taylor?
1: yeah, Yeah, I just start with Roosevelt. He actually was, it's hard to believe, he was only, I think, 63 when he died. Which is
0: super young by our standards, right?
1: He was not, obviously, in good health, uh, and he, of course, struggled valiantly with polio for much of his adult life. Actually, though, it was his other habits that might have really led to this congestive heart failure, which was well known by 1945 that he was dying, 44 even. Um, And one of the things we learned... In spite of that,
0: he got elected.
1: Yeah. One of the things we learned since is that his diagnosis was clear in 1944. He was terminally ill, uh, and yet he chose to run for that fourth term which again raises these these questions about like the extent to which the public should know that the health of its president oh
0: it's wow like, so he knew of that well, and he still ran for his fourth term
1: he was in, he was informed roosevelt himself knew the public did not his yeah yeah show, i mean this is private medical information but yeah. the 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 reports of his physician reveal both the diagnosis and one has to imagine a conversation with the president about his diagnosis prognosis that's, so that's something that we've learned subsequently how sick Franklin Roosevelt was in, in in running in 1944 for the fourth term and by again by our standards I think the public would want to know that and would really have insisted that he not be president again of now. course
0: yeah Because Truman changed the nature of the war and uh, negotiations that came with the Russians and what have you.
1: But the other three, the other three, I should say, I mean, all were elderly by presidential standards. They were three of the older presidents, Harrison, Harding and Taylor. Um, That being said, only Harrison was kind of superannuated by the standards of the day. He was in his late 60s when he was elected. Uh, And while there's still some debate as the exact cause of death, he certainly gave the longest inauguration speech in American history. He refused to wear (laughs) a coat or a hat.
0: This is in the 1840s, right? And it's
1: thought that he died of pneumonia, (laughs) but actually recent evidence shows it could have been first precipitated by dysentery um, with Washington, D.C. being literally a malarial swamp during these years. And it took down several presidents including James Buchanan, as I learned later, not to their deathbed, but he was pretty close. And then it might've been that pneumonia became the ultimate cause of death in Harrison only about 40 days after taking office. Wow. Taylor he gastroenteritis, which is no, no laughing matter in these areas, but again, it's related to getting sick from um, what he ate. Potentially it's, it's said that on a hot July 4th day in Washington, he downed a, of milk and a bowl of raw cherries, which
0: oh, that's a weird combination.
1: It, is, and <laughs> can imagine it having, as we would call today, bacteria and food yeah. be so violent that it could potentially kill an older individual like Zachary Taylor, and it did five days later.
0: How and old? Then, uh, what was the age frame of Taylor he, back
1: again? Mid sixties at that point.
0: Mid sixties, okay. and then
1: Warren Harding, um, also in his sixties, when he takes office. Uh, looks older than all these guys. Look older, probably than they are because they have white or gray hair. Um But he—he he was, in theory, a, a picture of health. That he, we now know, that he was a picture of sexual health. He, uh, <laughs> so he, he certainly, um, be, incredibly, has had a series of affairs outside of his marriage. and wow. But but that's probably not what killed them. Although of the four, his is perhaps the most controversial, as there's still. Some thought that um he was poisoned. That, oh wow. That uh that again Harding uh, potentially you know it's sort of like it's mysterious enough and the science was primitive enough in terms of there wasn't a proper autopsy done at the time to and this is by. the 1920s. 1923. Then here he is coming back from this Alaska cruise, um, and he takes violently, takes ill as he comes into San Francisco in fact. So I think the Warren Harding death site needs to be on your tourist list next time you're in the city.
0: Definitely, when I go there again and you go there, yeah, for sure. Has age ever been an issue for a U.S. president? I asked that because I remember, uh, I was young, but I remember it came up during Reagan's uh, second run at the presidency. So has it ever been an issue before that or since?
1: Uh, Biden?
0: Yeah, of course. <laughs> That's why I asked that question, Yeah.
1: Biden, Trump, we kind of forget that, you know, even in the 2016 campaign, in a way, you have Hillary Clinton, who was in her early 70s. You have Donald Trump in his early 70s. Already, both of them would have been the oldest president. Hillary Clinton was older than Ronald Reagan when she ran in 2016. So was Donald Trump. Um, We've sort of I mean, the goalposts have moved. Let's be clear. Being 70 today, knock on wood, is still a. Um an age where one can expect decades in fact of life ahead. And yeah, of these elderly candidates, they're they're all still with us, I'm knocking um, on wood here. They all seem to be in good health. And I mean, it's just said that every time we've had an older candidate emerge, John McCain in two thousand and eight, and McCain, of course, was dealing with cancer uh, mm. and had dealt with it and was and tenuously always it seemed um in 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 bad health. Um, he ended up living well past what would have been his eight years in office. So I, I sort of remember that, like, would John McCain have lived through two terms? Yes, he would have. Um, so we've never really had a president who's when age was made an issue, ultimately, um, who did not then make it, except I would argue Franklin Roosevelt. But in that 1944 campaign, there, it wasn't specifically made an issue. FDR's health or age wasn't really made a point of concern. Um, except by indirect kind of accusation by Tom, Thomas Dewey, who was running against him. So that's how I would say is that we've always, it's sort of been more in our recent times, but I guess these, these you know, septentagenarians just keep proving us wrong every time.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, we're talking about uh, first term and succeeding the first term into a second term, uh, which makes me wonder, have many democratic presidents failed to win a second term?
1: Well it's, it's interesting you ask about Democrats because we we might put Biden therefore in that his same historical category as a Democratic first term president who therefore is laboring through the same mechanics the same historical fate as his predecessors. And so by that standard uh yes you might say is he a Martin Van Buren a vice president of a former two term president? Yeah. Who will only Win one term despite trying again. Um, is he a Grover Cleveland, who is a one-term president who loses, uh, although he comes back to run again? Um, Grover he...
0: Cleveland was not anyone's vice president before that, right? That's right. And yeah, okay. and, and,
1: and the third, though, just to say, it, maybe would be Jimmy Carter again, a Democratic one-term president. So those are three one-term Democrats who attempted a second term, did not get them immediately or right away. Again, of them, only Martin Van Buren had been a vice president before um, and then does not win that third term. Now, there are some other Democrats who either run, do not run, I should say, or attempt to get their party's nomination and are denied. But really, we only have those three Democratic predecessors to Biden.
0: How about Republicans? The two that I can think of, are Mr. Trump and then uh, President Bush Senior, George W. H. Bush, right?
1: Recently, in terms of the Republican Party, there are, we have those two examples. But actually, there are there are more Republicans uh, who attempted second terms who
0: and didn't succeed. Um, Interesting.
1: By by comparison, now again, that's sort of a trickier comparison because you have. Going back to the 19th century, you've got um, Benjamin Harrison, again, who had defeated Grover Cleveland, but then will lose. And then you have...
0: And and if I may interject here, this Benjamin Harrison is different than the other Harrison that died in office that you were talking about. This is actually his grandchild. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Go ahead.
1: Um, yeah, I was just going to say, then you have presidents who did not want a second term or claim they would not run again and so we look at the list of presidents we see these one-term presidents we ask what happened i mean was it that they couldn't get that term uh and then or is it that they used their their election at a politically charged moment to then try to quell the waters and hear them thinking say like rutherford b hayes who mm-hmm. said he did not run for a second term but back to the democrats james buchanan even he was another one-term president who announced at the outset he would not seek another term. So was so is James K. Polk. So it can be a little deceiving in our era where it's assumed that a president will seek a second term. When we look back on the list of one-term presidents that in fact they purposely did not seek that second term. And, and from my perspective, I was curious if Biden in this moment might draw a page from history and determine that he would, um, Purposely be a one term president as opposed to what appears to be the case that he is, in fact, mounting a second run. Probably, the, you know, we've talked about uh, Trump and, and Bush. There's also, though, um, Gerald Ford, who again fills Nixon's term. He attempted to, to seek a term uh, and does not succeed. Um, there's Lyndon Johnson, who again had won a term, but then chooses not to run in 1968 which is an interesting moment as well um you also have before that um you have someone like calvin coolidge who potentially could have stood for another term chooses not to yeah and you have also the whole mix over theodore roosevelt who again could have been up for another term and, and chose not to so There's actually all these moments where incumbent presidents, typically, though, who had emerged as vice presidents or assassination or death. And Harry Truman, too, was eligible even after the amendment to run again, who choose to step aside in a moment because whether they feel it would be the best for their country, whether there's personal reasons involved, a mix of the two. But, yeah, there, there are a lot of moments that we've kind of lost of presidents stepping aside and not seeking another term because it's been
0: in our lifetimes really it's been a
1: long time since we've seen that's really been since 1968 that we've seen a president who's in power decide to to step aside at that moment
0: we'll be back after a short break uh, to compare mr biden's half-term presidential successes and failures to prior u.s presidents
2: We hope you are enjoying this podcast, and if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right, for the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the History Behind News podcast. We rely on your support to continue this program, to continue peeling the history behind our news. Supporting us is easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and other attributions and links. And thank you.
0: Dr. Balzerski, how do President Biden's successes and failures compare to the half-term mark of why are u.s presidents you know there are many so some highlights perhaps
1: yeah this is a good time to take stock of the biden presidency we are two years in and um at least at this point four years ago during the trump presidency i was interested to consider where this four years might be going uh, at that point we had seen the u.s congress turn over entirely against president trump both in the congress and or rather the house and the senate Um, and it was expected in a way. We called it the blue wave in 2018. Mm -hmm. Uh, Thus, fast forward to 2022, after two years of President Biden, and we can talk about those accomplishments in a second. But the very first thing I'll say is to what extent did the U.S. Congress turn against, did the people turn against the president? And as compared to President Trump, President Biden maintained the Democrats maintained control of the Senate in 2022, but did lose by small margin the House of Representatives. So just on that basis, Biden is is certainly doing better, you might say, than his, his predecessor. The one that we might compare to, again, from a Democrat, again, Democrat standpoint, would be to President Obama, who in 2010 also lost control of, of the U.S. Congress. Yeah, yeah. And Did so at a time when his legislative agenda seemed to be therefore imperiled um, in the House, but again keeps control of the Senate. So there is actually a probably a comparison best to President Obama in 2010, and in fact the 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 swing in votes in 2010 was much greater against President Obama vis-a-vis President Biden. But he
0: lost big. I think they called it a shellacking.
1: Shellacking his yeah. But the control of the Senate is narrower today than it was in 2010. Mm-hmm. But the Senate has narrowed, but stays Democratic in both instances. The House has narrowed, but did flip uh, to the Republicans in both instances. So just from like a, how did the people respond? What was the temperature that the public uh, felt in 2022? Biden stands out as, I think, the best of the, of the three recent presidents in terms of the public response to in the midterms. Um, In terms of legislative accomplishments, objectively, again, just just using Obama and Trump as your most recent comparables, he's he's, I think, also performing very well Um, in terms of major legislation, in terms of, you know, his accomplishments. He looks a lot like President Obama at this moment, I think, um, in terms of both how economics and response to sort of emergencies really shaped the first legislative efforts how a progressive agenda has evolved or worked itself surprisingly at times into these into these first two years um i noted the comparable would be a supreme court pick as well that both obama and uh biden have gotten here where although on that front trump will both he gets the three he gets the three picks during his term, yeah but trump maybe outperformed on that on that metric Although there's Republican obstruction to think about, the first pick uh, with with, with what should have been my rights, the Obama pick. So, and and then I guess I just I would just sort of say like, how is Joe Biden publicly, and then sort of like how do we assess his performance? There's polling, there's approval ratings, and for a time there, Joe Biden had the second lowest approval ratings in history, behind only
0: Trump. Oh wow!
1: Yeah, there was a moment where he looked abysmal and i think still among republicans he is um his poor ratings he there's no I, to me the polarized partisan nature of our times means that um you will not see republicans come around to joe biden in any significant way yeah his presidency in the same way that democrats did not to donald trump so that's maybe ceteris paradise maybe that's the thing that's equal but i think it's that great in between it's the it's the undecided voter it's the it's the person who either comes out or doesn't that decides elections and that i think we're seeing improvement um both in terms of biden's approval ratings today in 23 and again most recently in in the midterm election where his party outperformed i know i'm going to
0: ask you a tough question Uh, i don't have an answer for it so um um but I think it's an interesting one. Um, how what you what former U.S. president would you compare Biden to through his half-term? I mean, we got, you know, 45 of them before him.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting, because in answering it, I'm almost assuming what happens in the next two years.
0: Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah.
1: Does he make it? Does he yeah. make it in all four years? Does he seek a second term? Does he win a second term? Does he make it through a second term? Uh, Does he have a scandal-free post-presidency? I mean, there's some things that when we assess historical significance, we can't help but look at what comes after. So Mm -hmm. It's a rare thing, in other words, for presidential historians to judge the totality of a president uh, based on the first two years. We we do it now. We often do it in the moment to help us understand where a president sits, but Actually, it's not it no longer is useful after the passage of those two years. So I'd have to think about it really long and hard to think about where he sits. And while I could pull out some of those one term presidents um, and I could go back to the 19th century to make a comparison, I, I still think the only fair one is more recently. And that would, again, be President Obama. I just think that given the the personal connections between the two, given the similarities of their entries into office. I just think that that's probably the only fair comparable is that Joe Biden, um, by most standards, is performing as well or better than President Obama, but he's less popular and he's less sort of liked and he's certainly less seen as the future of the Democratic Party. And that gets to the, the biggest problem he has, stemming from age, is that many Democrats, if asked, um, would, if they had a choice, would prefer another candidate to emerge to run in 2024.
0: Have we had that sort of fracture in the past where um, different factions of the Democratic Party are rooting for another candidate aside from their own sitting president?
1: Absolutely. It it doesn't typically happen in, say, the second year, though. (laughs) What's interesting and potentially unique here is it's pretty early in Biden's term. I was thinking even back to the summer when we started to see the polling around the question of would you prefer someone other than Joe Biden to run in 2024, just the Democrats. And the majority, the majority of poll Democrats said yes.
0: Oh, wow. Majority.
1: That's that's what's unique here is that, you know, but but the thing about these kinds of questions and these hypotheticals is here we are talking like, yeah, I'd, I'd like to see another Democrat. Yeah. I mean. But who? Yeah, right. There isn't always just like what about Joe Biden versus this person? What about Joe Biden? It's and then, in fact, you have to still go another two years, and you still have to see who comes out of the Republican side. And I think what's interesting is that we, we are potentially setting up a rematch here in twenty twenty four between Biden and Trump, and
0: which would be I, really interesting. It'd be like Cleveland and and uh, Harrison, right? The rematch.
1: I mean, I think it would be in some ways um, that that sort of assumes the teleology that Trump is Grover Cleveland. Trump can beat Biden, i.e. Benjamin Harrison. Trump gets the second term. Um, but there are other instances, though, where former presidents have challenged the sitting president and I think have lost that potentially yeah. could be just as revealing or, or good a good comparable. So I'm not sure we have a Grover Cleveland here. Um, there's some there's some basic reasons why it does, the, the analogy doesn't work. But again, just to like say and answer your first question about were there democrat democratic candidates or democratic sitting presidents who were denied a second term? And the first one that comes to mind is actually Franklin Pierce. And here you have this another one of these obscure nineteenth century Democratic presidents.
0: Was Pierce in the eighteen fifties, early eighteen yeah. fifty?
1: Fifty-two, he's elected. He was actually elected by landslide. He comes in in a wave of popularity, you might say, a mandate. And instead, the thing that derails him is is his support of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which sets into motion an in opposition to the extension of slavery in the western territories, that yields a whole new political party, the Republicans. But for Democrats, they had to decide whether they would hand President Pierce a second term because it was done through nominating conventions. We no one knew going into the the Democratic nominating convention in Cincinnati in June of 1856 who would emerge. But by that time, James Buchanan was kind of everyone's second sort of favorite choice, I should say, instead of re-nominating Pierce. And so Buchanan actually will secure the nomination over Pierce. And so that there's so the dynamic would be unpopular first term president who. Goes into, in this case, the primary season, a little different than, say, a convention scenario, but the primary season and, say, loses the New Hampshire primary and the Iowa caucuses and a few of the early primaries. And it becomes clear, thinking now about like Joe Biden in 2024, that there's someone else that the party prefers. And he might not give up at that moment. He might, Biden might run to the convention. We could see a brokered convention every you know, political nerds. But and does that creating. happen? And, and I but,
0: appreciate you've written a book about pre- President Buchanan and you really have uh, uh, researched that convention and others. But I'm wondering, do does brokering really occur in our conventions now?
1: Again, I, I say every political nerd is just waiting. <laughs> We're just waiting for a brokered convention, a floor uh you know hundreds of rounds of balloting that's yeah. think, that's why the speaker of the house balloting most recently seen exactly uh, over four days and 15 ballots was like we were all just like chomping at the bit to talk about the history because there had been so many um yeah. drawn out battles for the speaker in the 19th century just like there have been so many drawn out battles for presidential nominations well into the 20th century so yeah. yes it's there in our history the primary system does not tend to promote brokered conventions. In fact, the primary system is designed to prevent conventions from having control or say. But given the reforms that aren't that old, in the 1970s the super delegates, uh, which we talked a lot about in 2016 when we saw Bernie Sanders criticized yeah,
0: the I remember that.
1: Yeah, convention delegates stemming from primaries. That there is still enough wiggle room, especially on the Democratic side. To see potentially no clear winner. There there are scenarios where the primaries do not produce a clear winner. And that's where superdelegates in theory would decide. But if they are divided, I mean, if, if, if there are there are scenarios where we get basically so-called a tie or an undecided vote. Um, and then brokered becomes potentially what happens before the convention t- to get ducks in a row, but it could also happen on the floor. So so yes, there are a couple of scenarios still, particularly on the Democratic side, where the where the, the whole structure isn't a perfect decision but we've not we've never seen anything even close to it um recently but to your point about challenges from the party like we don't have to go that far back to see on the democratic side that in 1980 Ted Kennedy mounted a very serious challenge to Jimmy. Oh, yeah America. um and that weakened him significantly Carter will win the nomination but he will walk away weakened now the Republican side Pat Buchanan did the same thing to George H. W. Bush in 1992, not as effectively, and then Ronald Reagan did it to Gerald Ford in 1976. So that's that is a scenario that is, if not likely, then possible. Some challenger to President Biden emerges, weakens him electorally, and sets the stage for a loss in in November. And I think if there is a challenger to President Biden uh, in the primaries, that is bad news for him in in a reelection
0: campaign. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Let's take a break here. Stay with me and Dr. Bazalarski as we get into the perspective.
2: The History Behind News podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And remember, don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the History Behind News podcast.
0: Dr. Balzowski, Jackson was the first president of the Democratic Party, but this Democratic Party, Biden's Democratic Party, is vastly different than Jackson's Democratic Party. Would Jackson recognize this Democratic Party, you think?
1: Well, I appreciate the question, Adele, and you are taking what I'll call the standard view of the genesis or the origin of the Democratic Party, and while Andrew Jackson is labeled a Democrat, is in many ways a founder or the founder of the Democratic Party. My own research and my current book project suggests that we need to go back to Thomas Jefferson.
0: Interesting. Okay. Thomas Jefferson.
1: That's a claim I will be making and putting forth and and defending as part of my research. But it's pretty clear to say- Is your
0: research for an upcoming book?
1: Yes, for an upcoming book. In fact, that is-
0: Do you have a tentative title for that?
1: I have a title. I have a. I have a, an argument. Even, um, <laughs> I'm also in the research phase here, and that's yeah. what I'm doing this year at the Huntington Library as a fellow. Is, is in fact researching the early origins of of this party, and one reason I think it should be acknowledged that Jefferson is as much an ideological founder of the Democratic Party as Jackson is a political founder, is how Democrats in time and over time looked back on their party and often quoted thomas jefferson um, as its founder so the title of the book interesting there a quote from jefferson's uh era and that is the greatest party ever known that's the title of the book the greatest party ever known and it's a direct quotation it's not
0: the grand old party is the greatest party ever known interesting it's not the gop
1: the GOP had had definitely had concision on their side. Yeah. So we we use GOP all the time, and it's it's a fantastic acronym, greatest party ever known. It's a mouthful.
0: It really uh, is.
1: But but it's it's a 19th century elocution that people at the time knew was a reference to Jefferson's political genius and to to the political system. Uh, that emerges in the 1790s, in which, th- which we now call the Democratic Republicans, or just the Republicans, to confuse you. This, these early, uh, we'll call them proto-Democrats, that 19th century and 20th century Democrats believed was their was their origin story. So, you know, I'm giving a little bit away here because I want to build interest in my book. And yes, I think that's oh, I am interested.
0: interested. Would love to have you back uh, when yeah, you publish so. that book. um So. I guess I should revise my question. Would either Jefferson or Jackson recognize Mr. Biden's Democratic Party?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, from that perspective, I can kind of go along the realm of ideology and political philosophy and then political practice and action. That's okay. kind of how I see Jefferson and Jackson as the two founders of this party. Um, starting with Jefferson and sort of uh, this complex figure um, from our past. In many ways, I think um, Jefferson would find more kinship with Joe Biden than would a Jackson. Um, I think thats <laughs> it's to say that um, Jackson's political party was exclusionary uh, to, to so many, and that was the basis ultimately for its inclusion of the common white male man into the party that, that expanded voting rights and access at the expense of African-Americans, Native Americans and women. Not to say that the other party at the time necessarily was pushing the needle too far there, the Whig Party, but it's to say that the, the Democrats were very triumphantly sort of exclusionary at this time. Whereas the modern Democratic Party is completely inclusionary and populist in that regard, a party of the people, and wants to be sort of the multicultural um, Coalition.
0: That, that sounds was, a lot different than Jackson's party, yeah, doesn't
1: it? It does. But at the same time, Jeffersonians and sort of the early, I mean, anti Federalists who kind of stood against the, the Federalist hegemony of the 1790s, they saw themselves as fighting for the common man. And that's a theme that runs through the, the really the DNA of
0: the Interesting. Yeah.
1: Um, the, so wh- wh- who is, who is, to, who sort of gets to be represented by this party changes over time. But the impulse to be the broad tent, the big tent party, I think, is what has, is what gives them commonality.
0: Do you think Jackson would vote for Mr. Biden's second term?
1: So, you know, again, <laughs> Jackson look at, just like, say, just pick the 2020 election. Pick, pick, you have Donald Trump over yeah. here, and you have Joe Biden over here. Um, I think what's interesting is that Joe Biden is a lifelong politician. Uh, he's a creature of the U.S. Senate. He's a vice president. Um, he is a, a swamp creature, to use a phrase, right? Part of
0: establishment, creator. yeah,
1: yeah. Right. And Jackson, who uh, had been a politician, nevertheless, and, in, and it was of course a military career, you know, once likened himself as an outsider. Uh, someone, to use our phrase today, would drain the swamp, right? Uh-huh. Like Someone who who is going to sort of be anti-establishment. So as much as Donald Trump would be like a plutocrat, would be this sort of a figure of wealth and power um, and from the elites. Nevertheless, I think Jackson's impulse is to reject the lifelong politician, Joe Biden, and vote for Donald Trump in 2020.
0: Even though Jackson is a Democrat and, and Trump is a Republican, that makes sense because of Jackson's populist. Uh, Ben, let's fast forward and get to, in time, and get to my last question here, uh, which has intrigued me uh, because of sort of modern setting, and that's FDR. Do you think Roosevelt, FDR, would recognize this Democratic Party?
1: Well, what's interesting is Joe Biden was born during Franklin Roosevelt's presidency. That's (laughs) That's right. Yeah. really not that far away um, oh wow yeah so and Donald trump is born 1946 uh right after
0: the year after uh, FDR, FDR dies
1: died. yeah so here you have these two men who are products of you might say Franklin Roosevelt's term the great depression and World War II the politics of the New Deal and of the war um they take two different paths in their lives. And I and again, so like which one is more truly the heir of Franklin Roosevelt? I mean, that one's a little easier. It's clearly Joe Biden. Yeah. Who both, you know, in his early entry into politics and in his entire career is picking up really the cause of liberalism as it's been understood through the years and it's been rebranded as progressivism and um, you know, any other all sorts of labels put to it, but he is truly Doing the same work of his democratic predecessors of the 20th century that Franklin Roosevelt, really Woodrow Wilson, I would argue, domestically put into place. I think from a foreign policy perspective, it's interesting too that um, Roosevelt was an interventionist. We might say he was eager mm. to bring America back into the political arena, um, to, to
0: international political arena. Yeah,
1: I mean to ultimately have. Uh, an impact on the great conflicts that were emerging in his term. That that's our, ostensibly the reason for the third term and to, to prepare readiness, preparedness for for what was then the Second World War, and then he will lead us through it. It's it's sort of interesting. And too, that's
0: similar I, to Biden. Is that your I suggestion?
1: Think, I think what, I, he's Biden's much more of an internationalist, a cooperation. Is he's going? He's he's bringing us uh, back into just various say climate agreements or into trade agreements where the Trump, Paris
0: climate agreement yeah. and NATO and what have you.
1: Yeah, whereas Trump weakened those alliances, withdrew the United States from those alliances, and, and I think is more in that sense an isolationist, not a term that anyone used as for political capital then or now, but thinking about it, he looks more like the the Republican presidents of the nineteen twenties, uh frankly in all his policies, than the the Democratic presidents of the nineteen thirties. So I'll give Biden double
0: check on that so um fdr would probably recognize mr biden's democratic party and from you know we don't know what other candidates may come up in the democratic um, party nomination process but chances are from what i just heard from you fdr would actually vote for a biden
1: Um, If FDR were alive, he would insist that you vote for him, but
0: yes. (laughs) That's a great point. Yeah. Um, Dr. Balzowski, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners and to our listeners. If you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks for having me on again. It's a pleasure.
0: The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At History Behind News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research. And we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit, to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments on Twitter or sending an email to Adele at HistoryBehindNews.com. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with History Behind News, a history podcast for our news.